Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New research on chemicals widely dispersed in the environment shows they make lab mice and their offspring fatter. So what we found is that the effects persisted in the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and that some of the effects were actually stronger in the great-grandchildren who had never been exposed. Some of the so-called fat depots were twice as big. Overall, the animals were probably about 15% fatter. Also, the secret life of fungi. Most of us think of fungi as things like mushrooms and toadstools, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's another part of the fungus. It's usually hidden in rotting wood and in the leaf litter on the forest floor. The fungus among us and its vital role in the ecosystem. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Conventional wisdom says overeating and the lack of exercise are behind the obesity epidemic in America and much of the world. But that's not the whole story, according to some research from the University of California at Irvine that implicates certain chemicals called obesogens. Here's Professor Bruce Blumberg. An obesogen, according to us, is a chemical that somehow causes the body to store more fat. And it can do that by making more fat cells, by putting more fat into those cells, or it can do that indirectly by changing how the metabolism works or by making you hungrier or by making you less able to sense that you've had enough to eat. Bruce Blumberg is a professor of developmental biology at UC Irvine. And here is the startling part of his research. Not only has his team confirmed earlier work showing that certain persistent organic pollutants can act as obesogens, they have found that initial exposures can echo down through at least three generations to make animals fat. This study used the chemical TBT, tributyltin, which was widely used as an anti-fouling paint until a few years ago. So we exposed pregnant mice to very low doses of tributyltin, and we knew from our previous work that that would give us effect on the babies who were so exposed. That would be, we would call that the F1 generation. And we asked the question, what happens if we bred those babies and the babies of those babies and checked whether there were subsequent effects? And what happened? So what we found is that the effects persisted in the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and that some of the effects were actually stronger in the great-grandchildren who had never been exposed. So how much fatter were these animals compared to your controls? It depends on which part of the fat that we looked at. So the effect on the fat in different parts of the body was different, but some of the so-called fat depots were twice as big. Overall, the animals were probably about 15% fatter. Now, this study used lab mice. How well do you think these findings might translate to humans? 100%. Really? The reason I say that is because tributyltin, TBT, works through a hormone receptor called PPAR gamma. And we know that there are pharmaceutical drugs that target that same receptor that make people fat. So if I have a chemical tributyltin that activates the same receptor, you would expect the same effect. So walk me through the actual physiological process of how a chemical like tributyltin works to become an obesogen. 
So as much as we know about tributyltin, it activates this hormone receptor, PPR gamma, and PPR gamma works as a, it has a partner. So it works as a dimer, has two parts. And the other part of that is called RXR, retinoid X receptor. So if TBT uh, happens to get into a stem cell and PPR gamma RXR is there, it activates that complex and it turns on a set of genes that cause the cell to become a fat cell. And along with that comes the ability to store lipids, to store fats. If PPR gamma is not there, that stem cell will become a bone cell. One of the most startling things that's in your report is your citation of a study that showed, and I quote, eight different species of animals, including pets, laboratory animals, and feral rats, living in proximity to humans, have become obese in parallel with the human obesity epidemic, and that the odds of this being coincidence were something like 10 million to one against? 10 million to one, yes. So what does that mean in your eyes about the human uh, obesity epidemic? You can make the argument, if you talk to the mainstream obesity community, they will make the argument that it's all about diet and exercise, calories in, calories out. And I don't see how you can explain the increase in obesity of animals, including wild animals, by calories in, calories out. It's got to be something else. It has to be the nature of the calories. It has to be a chemical, an environmental factor to which they're exposed now that they were not previously exposed to that, that underlies that. So who is most susceptible to tributyltin exposure? Tributyltin will make animals and humans fat at any stage of life. We're particularly concerned with prenatal exposures because that's where you have the capability to have transgenerational effects. You won't cause or we don't believe that you will exposing an adult will cause transgenerational effects on their offspring. But we know from our experiments that exposing embryos to a chemical like tributyltin will cause transgenerational effects. So, Professor Blumberg, tell me that I might need a couple of notches on my belt. Maybe I could blame on my mother or my grandmother even? <laughs> I don't know that you could blame it on them, but what your mother or grandmother was exposed to will affect the efficiency with which you handle calories. It's well known that obese people have more efficient metabolisms. They store higher proportion of the calories that they eat. Obviously, they do eat more, but they also store more of every calorie that they eat as fat compared with non-obese people. So that's an example of what we call metabolic programming. So what does that say now, thinking of our social policy in dealing with uh, human health and obesity? It says to me that the most important way that we can change obesity is not by treating obese people, but by preventing people from becoming obese in the first place by preventing these exposures, which can include chemical exposures, but they can also include exposures to improper diets. There is a fair bit of data out there that says exposing mom to a high fat or a junk food diet makes the babies prefer that kind of food. There's some kind of a programming event that's not well understood that's going on there. So it's not just chemical exposure. It's chemical exposure and, and dietary factors and the nature of diet early in life that I think is, a, is the area that needs to be addressed to make inroads into solving this obesity problem that we face today. And what about the folks who are already chubby? Well, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them, but I think that we're better off preventing them from becoming chubby. You know, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that 90% of people who lose even a significant amount of weight will gain it back. 
And that's also a very important factor here. Imagine you're a person who's worked very hard. You've dieted hard. You've exercised hard. You've lost 150 pounds. You look and feel better than you ever have in your life. Why is it going to be 90% probability that you gain that weight back? And the answer is? The answer is to me that it's not strictly behavior. It's It's a metabolic programming that your body is programmed to behave in a certain way by your early life experiences and that it's very difficult to fight that. Dr. Bruce Blumberg is a professor of developmental and cell biology at the University of California in Irvine. Thanks so much, Professor. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. The 2012 U.S. presidential election was the most expensive in history, and much of the $6 billion spent came from undisclosed donors. There's no question that secret money is powerful and influential in American public life, and not just on electoral races. An investigation by the U.K. newspaper The Guardian revealed that over the past decade, a pair of anonymous donor funds gave over $100 million to U.S. groups that deny a human role in climate change. Suzanne Goldenberg, the U.S. environment reporter for The Guardian, conducted the probe, and she joins us. Donors Trust and Donors Capital Fund are two vehicles which were put together for the express purpose of channeling donations from conservative donors to conservative groups. They have tax advantages for wealthy donors, but the other thing they offer their clients is an assurance the money won't be diverted to liberal causes and complete anonymity. So they don't have to become known as the benefactors of these causes. How much money are we talking about here? Over the last 10 years or so, they've raised about $400 million, of which about a quarter, a little more than $100 million, has gone to about 100 different organizations that have worked to undermine the science behind climate change or have worked to block action on climate change. Now, how does this work in in U.S. law? If these are tax-exempt organizations, one would think that they'd have to reveal their donors. Uh, No, these are perfectly legal. As uh, conservatives point out, there's an equivalent on uh, the liberal side of the political spectrum called the Tides Foundations. These things are perfectly legal, and what they do is they enable people to give money to a sort of black box, if you like, a council of advisors who will then distribute the money to other causes. So you can see the money going out to those causes, but you can't see the money going in. Suzanne, who are the groups that are getting these funds? You're talking about a range of groups here. You're talking about think tanks, organizations like the Heartland Institute in Chicago, which over the years has organized annual conferences, which are kind of an alternative to the UN Climate Conference, where they gather scientists and academics who uh, do not accept the established science on climate change. You've had other organizations which have focused on bringing lawsuits against climate scientists. One of the groups they support is called Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. One of its main causes is to put out a website called Climate Depot, which is a clearinghouse of information that attacks the science behind climate change and attacks people trying to bring about action on climate change. It's published, for example, the phone numbers of climate scientists and the email address of climate scientists and encourage people to write angry emails to these people. So it's a range of organizations that are supported by uh, Donors Capital Fund and Donors Trust. So let's step back for a moment. This is a dark pool. We don't know where this money is coming from. But the folks who stand 
to perhaps lose the most if this country takes on the challenge of climate are those who are in the fossil fuel industry. That's true. I mean, economically, but I don't think you can say that this is just about the money. I mean, the more I've studied these groups, and and I've studied them for a long time, I think you cannot ignore the importance of ideology here. A lot of wealthy conservatives who are, are opposed to action on climate change, not because all their money is wrapped up in oil companies, but because they really are opposed to any kind of government intervention in the economy. And they are afraid that if you start to put limits on carbon emissions, and that's the sort of first step towards lots of government intervention in the economy. And then next thing you know, it's a, we've got a global government and a single global currency. Conservatives aren't the only ones that use anonymous donor mechanisms. The liberals do as well. What's, what's the problem here? To me, the main difference is the causes they're supporting. When you're talking about science, when you're talking about the facts of climate science, the two sides aren't equivalent. And I don't think that it's legitimate to say putting out information about science is one thing and putting out information that is factually wrong is just as valid because they clearly aren't. I think that as a society, we'd be concerned if organizations were taking secret money to go out and say, hey, smoke as many cigarettes as you like, it won't hurt you. Hey, be afraid when you use a public washroom, you can get HIV AIDS from toilet seats. I think it's a very different thing when you're talking about putting out information that is factually incorrect, and you're doing that in a secretive fashion. So how are these groups involved in the public discussion on climate? I'm thinking of uh, President Obama recently uh, saying in his uh, State of the Union, as well as his inaugural address, that he wanted to be more active on that. Donors trust supported organizations involved in the response to that? They jumped right on it. It was really interesting to see. You know, the folks at Climate Depot put out a point-by-point rebuttal of the things that Obama was discussing in a State of the Union address. And since then, it's also interesting to see Climate Depot have really gone on the attack against the protesters of the Keystone Pipeline project. Suzanne Goldenberg, you've been looking at this now for, what, more than a year What effect do you think that the Donors Trust and the Donors Capital Fund has had on the climate conversation in this country over the past few years? I think they've created a lot of confusion and a lot of controversy about an area that used to be seen as apolitical and where the solutions used to be seen as clear-cut. So they have made it virtually impossible for the White House or for the Congress to act on climate change because this area is now seen as so, you know, it's a political third rail, if you like, and they have scared the politicians away from taking on a big challenge. Suzanne Goldenberg is the U.S. environment correspondent for the U.K. paper, The Guardian. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you. We ask the Donors Trust for comment. An email from CEO Whitney Ball is on our website, LOE.org, and it reads in part, Donors Trust was established to promote liberty and help like-minded donors preserve their charitable intent. As donor-advised funds are not required to disclose their donors, she wrote that comments in the press that label the trust secretive and refer to its dark money are unfair and misleading. Coming up, what we, all of us, owe to plants. 
That's next on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When it comes to fighting climate disruption, trees are some of the most effective frontline soldiers. An acre of healthy forest can pull in as much as three or more tons of carbon out of the air each year. And the bigger the tree, the more carbon it can store or sequester in its trunk. The state named after founder William Penn's Woods, Pennsylvania, has plenty of forests, about 70% in private hands. These woods are the subject of a value-added program developed by the Nature Conservancy that is designed to make money for forest owners while still sequestering carbon and keeping the air and water clean. The Allegheny Front's Ann Murray has our story. A Pennsylvania forest has a new surprising ally. You might even call it a sponsor. Meet the Chevrolet Equinox and meet a world of new experiences new places. Chevy Equinox is not just a smallish SUV the auto giants marketing to the young and hip. It's also paying to keep a forest a forest. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania Water Authority gets paid by Chevrolet for each ton of CO2 that the trees in its 22,000-acre forest pull out of the air and store in their trunks and roots. That's according to Steve Repish, the authority's director. We're anticipating, you know, uh, to be on the safe side, anywhere between seventy-five and one hundred thousand dollars annually. If we get more than that, great. Bethlehem is the first partner in the Nature Conservancy's Working Woodlands Program, a model project that the conservancy has put together with Blue Source, a carbon credit broker in California. Working Woodlands is one example of what you might call value-added forestry. That is, a way to keep forests healthy while also making money off them. For landowners, they. They kind of get a one-two punch. Roger Williams is the president of Blue Source, the carbon brokerage. Several years ago, we began conversations with the Nature Conservancy. The intent was to combine FSC forest certification with the creation of carbon credit for landowners that wanted to participate in that market. FSC is the Forest Stewardship Council. Timber with an FSC certification can be sold for more than regular wood kind of like organic for trees. Carbon markets, like companies and others, pay forest owners to store CO2 to compensate for their own greenhouse gas emissions. With that in mind, the city of Lockhaven in north-central Pennsylvania has just signed on with the Conservancy. Their next step is to take a really close look at their 5,000-acre property. That look begins with an inventory of trees. Forester Mark Banker pounds rebar into the ground to mark one of a thousand or so small plots that will be documented. The Nature Conservancy's Mike Eckley calls out the trees he wants to be measured. Let's start with that white pine right ahead of you. Banker loops a tape measure around the trunk of the tree. 17. All right, white pine, acceptable growing stock saw timber. Eckley records the diameter of the inches. tree and other notes about the tree's health and timber value into a handheld device. An independent auditor will come in later to verify the numbers. And we'll do it again every five or ten years on permanent plots. Merchantable height of three logs, no defect. The information will help the team decide things like what trees to cut and when. Computer models will predict how much carbon the forest can store. This is key for the carbon markets this forest is tied to. You just can't rent out your woodlot to qualify for these programs. You have to prove that you're increasing the amount of carbon absorbed by actively managing these woods. And you only get paid for the increased amount of carbons your trees store. 
Josh Parrish runs the Working Woodlands Program for the Nature Conservancy. I tell them that, you know, there, there is money in them, their trees. They can be rewarded by sustainably managing their property for quality and for quantity. The higher quality trees you have, the faster typically they grow. Growing bigger and older trees will sequester more carbon. Like Bethlehem, Lock Haven is happy about the chance to make money in the carbon market and sell the higher priced FSC certified timber. But in both cases, their real priority is protecting their watersheds. Healthy forests filter and cool streams that pass through them. That's why the Lock Haven Authority has been buying woodlands in their watershed since 1850. There are, of course, other benefits to keeping woods around. Walk-on recreation will be allowed under Lock Haven's new agreement, along with hunting and timbering, possibly even deep shale drilling. Josh Parrish of the Nature Conservancy says, after all, this is the Working Woodlands Program. Conservation has been moving from kind of set-asides to sustainable management. And that's where also our conservation easements have been moving from being thou shall nots to working with landowners and to manage the lands um, for sustainable harvests, carbon for climate. The Conservancy hopes to expand working woodlands to other Appalachian states and is currently in China, in Sichuan province. There's a temporal forest there that looks a lot like the Appalachian woods. For Living on Earth, I'm Ann Murray in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Our story on forests comes to us by way of the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front. For the silk we use, we depend on the mulberry tree that feeds the silkworm. And for millennia, insects, such as the silkworm, have in turn helped guide the evolution and defenses of plants. A five-year study from researchers at Cornell University and Science Magazine focused on the critical role insects can play in plant evolution and how speedy that evolution can be. The lead author is Anurag Agarwal, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell. Organisms in the food chain are either directly or indirectly dependent on plants. We don't think of lions as you know being dependent on plants or particular bird species, but they eat organisms which eat other organisms which fundamentally must rely on plants, eat plants to get their energy. And because of that, there's been tremendous natural selection, tremendous pressure on plants over the eons to develop defenses. Talk to me about the way that plants have evolved uh, alongside insects. Yeah, there's been a long history of circumstantial evidence that many of the traits plants have are adaptations to insect herbivores. If you think about the things we eat, you know, what makes horseradish spicy? Well, horseradish is spicy because of a set of compounds called glucosinolates that we believe have evolved by natural selection to ward off insects. You know, the poisons that make milkweeds so famous, you know, same expectation. What's nicotine? Nicotine is a neurotoxin of tobacco that has evolved by natural selection to ward off insects. Please describe the specifics of your study for us. What were you looking at? Well, what we did is we set out uh, experimental plots here in Ithaca, New York, to examine the impact of insect herbivores on the plants. And we removed insects from half of the plots using an insecticide treatment. And over a very 
quick period of time, about five years, five generations of the plants we were studying, the common evening primrose, it's a wildflower, removal of insects resulted in the evolution of two very critical plant traits, how early the plants flower and the production of a toxin in the fruits of those flowers. When we removed insects, the plants were able to relax those defenses. They flowered earlier, and they produced less of those toxins in their fruits. So how surprised were you by these results? The results that we got, we had anticipated, and it was sort of part of our hypothesis. But what really surprised us was the rapidity of this evolutionary response. Seeing the response in five years was dramatic, and it sort of, you know, it really knocked our socks off in the sense that we know that evolution can be rapid, but to watch it happen, watch the genetic change happen over that period of time was something that surprised us and the rest of the scientific community. I mean, one thinks of evolution, one thinks it takes a long time, for example, to get from, say, the great apes to humans is like millions of years, right? Yeah, and that's right. Evolutionary biology, in a sense, is a historical science. We're trying to piece together often how we got to where we are now by looking into the past. And you're certainly right that most speciation events, that is when an ancestor gives rise to two new entities that are isolated reproductively, they're, they're new species, often does take thousands to millions of years. In our study, what we were talking about is the rapid adaptation that occurs within a species. And the way one might think about how this might be operative in nature is as the climate changes, as we have a set of good or bad years, if in a particular location there are high pest loads compared to another place where there are low pest loads, we can expect to see rapid change in those populations. If those environmental effects are sustained over hundreds or thousands of years, we might then expect a new species to be born. So seeing such rapid uh, evolution uh, in plants, what do you see as the larger significance of these findings? I think there's a few things that are significant. One is the recognition that evolution occurs all around us. Uh, I think that's an important message for the American public in the sense that there's surprising to me and many scientists still some debate about the importance of evolution in the history of the planet and the history of the organisms that we have on the planet. So the fact that we can in real time see that change in genes and genotype frequencies over a short period of time is a critical sort of message to the public. From a biological and more academic perspective, one of the things we reported is, um, is something that I think was known to Darwin and, and he sort of speculated on, but still hasn't cemented itself as dogma among scientists. And that is that on the same timescale that ecological interactions occur, in our study, for example, as the environment changed, the competition among different plants, species that were in our plots was intensified. On that same timescale, there are evolutionary changes that are occurring. And so I think one of the main messages to the academic community is ecology or environmental change and evolution can occur on the same timescale and may, in fact, feed back with one another. I must ask, uh, I mean, what are the implications of your study on how we think about insecticides? Well, um, it's complicated, and I appreciate the question. Insecticides certainly have been a very valuable tool in the production of agricultural crops. And I think what it tells us is that when we take insects out of the picture, uh, using things like insecticides, we are encouraging plants throughout the evolutionary process to relax their defenses. And in fact, uh, this is a story that I think is unfortunately really a big part of worldwide agriculture, and that is that we tend to select varieties of plants to grow that are 
diminished in their natural defensive capacities. If you take a wild plant that survived out there for millions of years, it typically has a remarkable array of toxins and defensive tactics to ward off pests. About 10% of all plants produce hydrogen cyanide. Uh, we know hydrogen cyanide as a very general toxin, an anti-life compound. And this hydrogen cyanide that's in 10% of the plants has no primary function. It doesn't help the plant capture sunlight or produce seeds directly. What hydrogen cyanide does is poison insects that are trying to eat those plants. One of the things that I think we do a little too well is we either on purpose or inadvertently breed crops so that they have relaxed defenses. And that increases our needs and our usage of pesticides, which uh, I think we can all agree is problematic for the environment. Anurag Agarwal is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Animals can use patterns and colors as camouflage. Zebras and tigers have their stripes, hyenas and leopards their spots, but as writer Mark Seth Lender observes, the dazzling snowy egret stands out in a crowd. The snowy egret lands, the name and color of a substance she will never see. There on the muddy bank, still as chalk her carved and ancient figure stands stilting. Like Nike, she leaps sailing into the bright, wide-winged above the shallow water where she feeds, so white sunlight seems shadow. What could be the purpose of such brilliance, snow in summer? Perhaps in some prior life this most strident, most absolute of colors kept her safe in a far and frigid land, and all these amazing feathers are only an artifact of dim ice ages past. Or, in the brief season between her comings and goings, this is her temporary color, as polished and transparent as paper made of rice, except there is no other phase than white when egret flies. There is fragility in all this. The bird, the salt marsh where she lands, even the turbulent sand. From the south, the assault comes by hurricane, each season earlier and more ferocious than the last. From the north, it is the melting, and where there is no flood, drought. There is no reprieve. As the brackish plain is silted out or altogether gives way, where will Snowy Egret go? How will she retreat from winter when winter itself is in retreat? When the sun pounds like the hammer to the anvil, all life is forged to the blow. The upper latitudes break away, the equator burns. North and north and north the southern creatures go, driven there by unfamiliar weathers. Life once rare becomes common, the common vanishes. Perhaps it is not camouflage, but survival of a more intense and personal kind which turns the egret white, reflecting not just light, but heat. Maybe she will be all right. What about us, I wonder? Mark Seth Lender is the author of Salt Marsh Diary, a year on the Connecticut coast. To see some of his photographs and find out more about his writings, go to our website, LOE.org.
Coming up, listening to the Dawn Chorus as naturalist Aldo Leopold heard it more than 70 years ago. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hamlet, that deep thinker, told his friend Horatio that there were more things in heaven and earth than were dreamed of in his philosophy. Well, Ari Daniel Shapiro has been bringing us regular insights into the myriad diverse species to be found in the living world. And today he brings us a kingdom and a riddle. I'm pretty sure you haven't heard this one before. What is all around us and very hard to see? And both dismantles and shapes our world. Let's have a little look for another log. Lynn Boddy, an ecologist from Cardiff University in Wales, is the one who gave me the idea for the riddle. She's shuffling through the leaves in a little patch of forest in Concord, Massachusetts. Oh, look at this. She spotted a soft birch tree log lying on the forest floor. Boddy kneels down and starts tugging on the log. We've turned over this log. Can you see this? Oh, yeah. A few limp cream-colored threads descend from the rotting log and make their way into the soil. They look like plant roots to me, but I'm wrong. What we're looking at is the main part of a fungus. Most of us think of fungi as things like mushrooms and toadstools, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the fruit body, and the fruit bodies are like the flowers of flowering plants. There's another part of the fungus. It's usually hidden in rotting wood and in the leaf litter on the forest floor. They're really helping to kind of connect this rotting wood to the soil. That's exactly right, they are. These fungal threads, or mycelia, are doing the work of decomposition, slowly digesting and feeding upon this birch tree. One example is the sulfur-tuft fungus, Hyphaloma fasciculari, an organism that grows both in the U.S. and in Britain. Body gingerly holds the mycelium and begins tracing it through the soil. Oh my goodness, it's attached to an acorn from this oak tree. So it's not only decomposing the wood of, of, of the birch tree, but it's decomposing this old acorn. A little farther along, the fungal threads have grabbed a hold of another little acorn hat, crawled along its perimeter, and surged out the other end in search of something else to colonize. A branch, a tree stump, or another log. Nutrients consumed in one part of the fungi get routed into this vast interconnected mycelial network. And if one part of the network gets chewed up by a woodlouse, say, or stomped through by a deer, it's no big deal for the fungus. It's so interconnected that there's little risk of chopping one of these fungi in two. Body loses the trail when the mycelia plunge straight down into the soil. But this fungal tapestry doesn't just carpet the forest floor. In all of these trees that you see around us, there are fungi within the trunks and branches, not doing very much, just these tiny little pockets. And then the minute that the water in the sapwood of these trees stops flowing, these fungi will grow into bigger mycelia and start the decay process. So the minute this tree comes down, or even before decay has started, then spores will land and they will try to get in and it will have landed on a network of cords on the forest floor and that fungus will get in too and so we have a battle going on in this wood. 
a greedy battle over the nutrients locked up inside the newly dead tree. So that's one portrait of the fungal community, lying in wait, wood-thirsty, and skirmish-prone. But there's another side to fungi, the benevolent side, and the second half of the riddle, what not only dismantles, but also shapes our world. None of these plants in this beautiful woodland would be here if it were not for fungi, for two very good reasons. One is that the fungi which are decomposing actually release the nutrients that can then be used by the trees around. And the second reason is that all of these plants, every single one of these plants around us, have fungi attached to their roots. These mycorrhizal fungi, species like Amanita brunescens here in this woodland, associate with 90% of the plants on Earth. They ensheath the roots, or sometimes they grow in between root cells. These fungi absorb water and nutrients from the soil and share them with the plant. In exchange, the fungi get some of the sugars pulsing through the plant roots. It's plants plus fungi that make the ecosystems of our planet work. Plants are, I mean, I think of them as independent beings. You know, they just need the sun in order to survive. But you're saying that they wouldn't stand one minute without fungi. That's absolute true. In fact, Body says that plants needed fungi to be able to colonize land 450 million years ago. So fungi both nourish and destroy. They pump vital fluids, rich with nutrients, into the very plants that other fungi will later carve up and consume and they digest the dead, leaving behind the raw materials for new life to be born. And it just takes getting your hands a little dirty to trace the weave of their vast network. Okay, look here. Now, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Our story on fungi is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media, with help from the Encyclopedia of Life. morning before dawn, Aldo Leopold would sit on a bench outside his shack in Sauk County, Wisconsin, with a pot of coffee and a notebook. As the sun rose, he took detailed notes as each bird joined the dawn chorus. Aldo Leopold was well known for his observations of the natural world, gathered in his 1949 book, A Sand County Almanac, that many considered to be some of the finest essays on the intrinsic value of nature. Well, now we can actually hear the chorus that Aldo Leopold made note of in his morning journal, thanks to a team led by Stanley Temple, Professor Emeritus in Conservation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Temple joins us from Madison. Welcome to Living on Earth. Glad to be here. So Aldo Leopold is an iconic figure to some, but for those of us who aren't as familiar with his work, who was Aldo Leopold? Aldo Leopold was probably the most influential conservation thinker of the 20th century. His career spans the first half of the 20th century, and during that time, he made some remarkable contributions. He began his career as a forester, but by mid-career, he turned his attention to broader issues of conservation. And for most people, what they know best about Aldo Leopold was that he left us a Sand County Almanac. This was essentially the, uh, the culmination of his life journey, and it expressed his ideas about our relationship with the natural world. Professor Temple, you're a scientist by training, so how did you become so interested in this historical figure? 
Well, I was fortunate during my 32 years as a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin to have occupied the chair that Aldo Leopold once held. Not only was he a, a hero of mine personally, but because of my professional ties to him, um, I made it my business to learn more about him. And the university's archives has just a remarkable collection of his, uh, his papers. And among those papers, I discovered an unpublished manuscript that he was working on at the time of his death, in which he uh, described the work that he had done over a decade of time, studying the dawn chorus of birds, and in particular, how the sequence of songs uh, plays out in the early morning light. What scientific observations did Aldo Leopold make about the morning bird chorus? He became fascinated with the sequence in which birds joined the dawn chorus, and he was working on a hypothesis that the sequence was determined by light intensity, that each bird joined in the chorus, cued, you might say, by the intensity of the light. He bought one of the earliest light meters that were available, something that measured light intensity. He was very early in sort of posing this hypothesis. Others in the 1950s, when the technology was better, followed up and indeed verified that Leopold's ideas were correct. Please describe for us uh, Aldo Leopold's non-birding routine. Well, we could actually use his own words uh, because he does describe it in nice detail in one of his essays in the Sand County Almanac called Great Possessions. My daily ceremony, contrary to what you might suppose, begins with the utmost decorum. At 3.30 a.m., with such dignity as I can muster, I step from my cabin door, bearing in either hand a pot of coffee and a notebook. I get out my watch, pour coffee, and lay notebook on knee. This is the cue for the proclamations to begin. What gave you the idea to try and recreate the sounds that Aldo Leopold heard in his shack there in Wisconsin? Well, having read the unpublished manuscript, uh, it struck me that you could put together from his notes all of the ingredients that would be required to recreate the sound that he was hearing. Well, it it lay on the shelf or in the filing cabinet for many, many years, and this past summer... Brian Pijanowski, who's one of the leaders in the new soundscape ecology movement, invited me to give the keynote address at an NSF workshop that was held at the Leopold Center here in Wisconsin. And I thought this was the perfect incentive to actually go back and see whether indeed we could recreate the soundscape Leopold was listening to from his notes. I'm wondering what kinds of materials you were working with here, what, what Aldo Leopold's uh, notes look like. Well, his notes were taken in a shorthand, and what he noted was uh, the time at which he first heard each bird joining the chorus. And he then took notes on how frequently he heard each species singing. So with that information, we could actually put the birds into the proper sequence and the proper timing of their calls, but it went further than that. Um, if you listen to the tape that we produced in stereo, we've actually placed the birds in the soundscape in the relative positions that they should be in based on Aldo Leopold's territory maps. We're going to play a clip from your soundscape now. Um, please identify some of the sounds for us as we listen. starts off with the American robin, the early riser. 
hear some birds in the distant background, but the next bird to join is a field sparrow. That trill is the field sparrow? That's the field sparrow. We paid attention to the birds that were very close to Leopold. The ones that, as he said, that he paid attention to. The next bird you're going to hear is an indigo bunting. in the background. Good thing they were a distance, they can be pretty loud. Yeah. Now, is this a compression of time, uh, is this, or is this or in real time here? We did compress the time. We didn't compress the bird's songs. What we did, we compressed the intervals between each bird's calls, but we compressed them proportional to Leopold's notes. So we actually compressed um, the first half hour of the day into five minutes. It still sounds pretty much like what it really does sound like, just not quite so much downtime between, between calls. Now, who else has joined in here? Yeah, the wood, wood peewee comes in, followed by the song sparrow and, and gray catbird. They start to pile on pretty quickly about this point. Okay, there's who's that? Cat, there's a catbird, sounding like a cat mewing. So what does the land around uh, Aldo Leopold's shack look like today? Well, it's undergone quite a transformation since 1935 when Aldo Leopold purchased this worn-out farm that had almost no vegetation on it to speak of. He and his family spent many thousands of hours planting prairies, planting trees, and today, of course, what you see is a fairly mature ecosystem. And because of that, the birds that you hear today are a slightly different blend of birds, mix of birds, than Leopold was listening to. There are certainly more species in the dawn chorus today than there were in Leopold's time because of the habitat that Leopold and his family created for them. So we're going to play a clip now of the dawn sounds around the cabin taken from uh, this summer. Let's have a listen. Well, there are a lot more birds there, but it's pretty hard for me to hear them. That's right. And, but what you do hear is the traffic from the interstate. How do you think Aldo Leopold would respond if he could hear uh, the morning uh, soundscape that you recorded uh, in 2012? 
Well, I think Leopold already gives us a hint that he was, to some extent, offended by the sounds of humanity that were impinging on the natural sounds. I'm going to read a, just a couple of sentences from another of his essays from a Sand County Almanac called Too Early, in which he talks about arriving very early in a duck blind in a marsh. To arrive early in the marsh is an adventure in pure listening. The ear roams at will among the noises of the night without let or hindrance from hand or eye. Like many another treaty of restraint, the pre-dawn pact lasts only as long as darkness humbles the arrogant. By breakfast time comes the honks, horns, shouts, and whistles of an awakening farmyard, and finally at evening the drone of an unattended radio. So Leopold was well aware that the sounds of human beings were intruding on, on the natural sounds. So I don't think he would be surprised. I think he might have been uh, certainly offended by the fact that the interstate highway came so close to his uh, beloved shack. What's your favorite passage from a San County almanac that you would feel comfortable uh, reading right now that, that captures Aldo Leopold's thoughts on nature? Well, I think it's one that uh, probably many people who are conservationists are aware of. Um, it's one that gets quoted fairly often. If the land mechanism as a whole is good, then every part of it is good, whether we understand it or not. If the biota in the course of eons has built something we like but do not understand, then who but a fool would discard seemingly useless parts? To keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. And I think you could apply that uh, golden rule of Aldo Leopold's uh, to the problems of soundscapes being polluted, if you will, by human-generated noises. Stanley Temple is a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin and a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponzi Rutch, Aaron Wheats, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.